982. Thank you. Uh, If you want to turn with me in the Pew Bibles, or you can look in your own Bible if you brought one. We're looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. The translation we're looking at, unhelpfully, puts a break between verses 1 and 2. But we're going to preach it uh, because we think verse 1 actually better goes with verses 2 and beyond. It's kind of a bridge, so don't get too hung up on it. But that's how we're going to read it. So uh, let's read together. Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored by my side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray together. Lord, help us as we uh, study the Bible tonight. Open our hearts to understand and to receive what you have to say to us. Open our minds so that we'll have clarity about what you are saying to us. Lord, we pray that you would move our hands and our feet, Lord, to not simply to hear and go away, but to do what you have called us to do. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In most military battles, there is a critical point where some part of the defending force claims its spot and says, this is the place where we will make our stand. This is where we will stand firm and hold our ground no matter what. Um, If you are fans of Lord of the Rings, like I am, uh, you may remember that in the kingdom of Rohan, there is a place where they go when this becomes necessary. It is the, the fortress of Helm's Deep, and it has never been captured by enemies. And so as the forces of darkness under Lord Sauron rise around them, as, as they're in, uh, threatened actually by the traitor Sauron and his new orc army, they retreat to Helm's Deep to stand firm, to hold their ground in that place. But if you've seen the movies, they sort of make this a bigger deal. In the books, it's a bit more subtle. But their ability to stand their ground in that moment is undermined. It's undermined by external forces. The army was much greater than they thought. The army, orcs usually have weaknesses of being afraid of daylight. These were not. They were bigger and stronger than they ever thought. 
Not only that, but there was division within. The fortress was well known by a traitor who had lived for many years in the kingdom. The king himself had in his own soul a cancer that had captured him for so many years that even now as he was trying to find the courage, he wavered. And in the middle of that cancer as well, he had lost contact with his allies. So there was no help that would come. And so their ability to stand firm and to hold their ground was compromised. Friends, I wonder if that's true as well in our spiritual lives as well. I wonder if in the midst of our desire to hold our ground... In, in faith, in believing God, that we find ourselves beset by pressures from the outside that seem overwhelming, by weaknesses within our own heart and our own soul that jeopardize our ability to stand firm and to hold our ground. You may have been here being a Christian for a long time. Maybe you're here tonight and exploring it for the first time. Whatever your situation is, I hope that as we look at our passage tonight, you will learn. You will learn some of the challenges of standing firm in the Christian faith, but also some of the resources that God has given us to do that. So let's look at our passage tonight together. Paul has just finished in the last part of chapter 3, laying out these two ways to live. If you want, look back with me for just a second. You can see there's sort of two ways to live. There's one, pressing on towards the upward call, following Jesus, whatever it takes, no matter what the cost is, because God has done a great thing in Jesus. And this is one way to live. And then there's this other way in verses 18 and 19, where it says these people are actually walking as enemies of the cross their God is their belly their minds are on the things of this world and not on the things of God they say and he's encouraging this church he's encouraging the believers in Philippi to press on, to keep going and then in chapter chapter 4 verse 1 he changes the metaphor rather than this race metaphor of continuing on and running and running he actually switches to this, this metaphor of standing firm So in verse 1 he says, Therefore my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. And from that he then launches into a series of exhortations and instructions about how to do that. About how to stand firm. And we're going to look at it in three sections. And each section shows an enemy to standing firm. A gospel command on how we're supposed to live in light of that enemy. And then a gospel promise That gives us a ground that will enable us to do that. So we're going to try and do this quick. So we have good time for Q&A at the end. But we're going to move through and try and see these things. So the first one. Verses 2 and 3. Talk about this conflict between these two women. Yodia and Syntyche. And Paul begs them to agree in the Lord. So what is the enemy of standing firm for these two and for the church? It is disunity. It is fighting with one another it's fighting about non-important things 
Because you see as they're described, these women were partners with Paul in the gospel. They're not arguing about basic things like the nature of God or the trustworthiness of the scriptures or the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They're not arguing about central truths. Whatever the issue is, they're having a hard time getting along, even in the midst of being fellow workers in the work of the church. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the number one reason why missionaries leave the mission field is relationships with their co-workers. I don't know if I could document this, but it's got to be in the top three reasons why people stop coming to church or why people stop coming and engaging in church life because they have some conflict with someone along the way. And you know, maybe... You, like, like me, my desire in the midst of that so often is to withdraw. I just want to run away. I don't want to deal with a conflict. I just, I just want to make it go away by removing myself from the situation. We don't know exactly what it was that caused these, these women to have this conflict. Um, but, but I know... I know in my own life, I know in every group of people I've ever been a part of, in every church I've been a part of, that conflict happens. And when it happens, it threatens our ability to stand firm. Often we want to excuse ourselves and our conflict and say, well, you don't know what they did. Sometimes we want to just overlook it. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't good. But still in our hearts, we've lost that sense of being in it together. Paul says, I encourage you women to agree in the Lord. Oh, and by the way, I encourage all of you, help them. Come alongside of them. There's this mysterious true companion who's never, never identified. Um, but he's saying all of you, help them to agree in the Lord. So a conflict between two people is not an isolated thing. Oh, they just have to work it out themselves. In God's conception of his people, it's a communal thing. And so we are called to actually help one another to resolve conflict, to overcome these challenges. How do we do this? Well, I think because of the gospel promise that you see at the end of verse 3. Look with me at that. He's talked about these partners. He says... All of these people are those whose names are written in the book of life. And this is shorthand for saying each one of these people have been bought by the blood of Christ. And in Revelation there will be a day when the book of life will be open. And the names of all who have trusted in Jesus Christ will be read. And all of those are the, the sons and daughters of God who will live forever in a family together. Because Jesus has won them and brought them in and caused them to stand. And so Paul says, if that's our goal, if our citizenship is in heaven, if we are part of one family, let us not overlook the conflict and allow that to divide us. 
Because in fact God has called us to run this race together. And to stand firm together. And we can only do it when we stand firm together. When the Roman phalanx was formed, it required each man to hold his shield in just the right way so they would stand together. If one man was in conflict with the one next to and there was a breach, suddenly vulnerability happened. Friends, this is what Paul warns us of. And he exhorts us, work out, work out your conflicts because God has called you to eternally be together in unity as a part of his family. So that's the first enemy conflict. The second one, verses 4 through 7. He gives a staccato list of, of, uh, of commands here. But I think at, at its core, the enemy that he's addressing here is what we see in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. It's a remarkable thing that Paul says, hey, don't be anxious. I'm sitting here in jail. There are people running around the countryside saying incredibly damaging things about me that are keeping me here and making me and my ministry and my life investment in the gospel look really terrible. And Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about whether you're in prison or not. Don't be anxious about whether people say bad things about you or not. Don't be anxious about whether your life work is about to crumble before your eyes or not. It seems pretty remarkable that Paul says, don't be anxious. And of course he says this and Jesus said it in Matthew 6 too because this is one of the things we all struggle with, don't we? If I just ask the question, what are you anxious about? You could all give me an answer, couldn't you? Your relationships, your finances, your future, something. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure each of you could know what it is. And as we find ourselves facing difficult circumstances or things that are outside of our control, what do we do? We so easily start to grasp and we so desperately want to control the situation so that we get the right outcome in the, thing, the very thing that we are worried about. And when we face things that are out of control, we feel helpless and we, and we despair. Paul says there is a gospel command for you when you are anxious. Look with me in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. He uses three words to say it over and over again just to repeat it. Right? By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. The gospel command is to pray. What does that mean? It means go and take your concerns and take them to the very one who actually has control. The one who is actually able to help you in every and any circumstance. And that is the creator of the world and the Lord of heaven and earth. So pray to God when you are anxious. Pray persistently. Pray fervently. Pray under your breath as you're walking from meeting to meeting in your office room. Pray as you're about to pull your hair out because your kids have done the same thing again. Pray as you're walking into that exam that you feel like your whole future is going to rest on. 
Pray in the middle of the fight that you're having with your good friend. Pray in all the things that you are anxious about. And ask God to be sovereignly in control. Ask God to be the one who will take care of your life and the things that you desperately want to take care of. And the gospel promise here is so sweet. Verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart. Lots of commentators translate, will garrison your heart. Do you know what a garrison does? A garrison comes and lives in a town in order to protect it. Right? And so when need be, they muster themselves out and and put themselves up in defense around a town so that it will be protected. And do you see what Paul says here? Paul says, when you pray, the peace of God will create this protective barrier around your heart so that it won't be overwhelmed with anxiety, so you won't be eaten up with worry, so that you won't spend all your time thinking about how can I solve this problem and how can I get in control of the situation? How can I get ahead of this thing that's gotten away from me? But instead it will keep your heart and mind trusting in Christ Jesus. Trusting in God and what he's done for you in Christ Jesus. Now we need to unpack this phrase, the peace of God, just for a minute. Because what is it that he's saying? He's not saying the angels will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. He's he's not even saying the spirit will do this. He's saying the peace of God. What does that mean? Well, as we look at more broadly, Paul describes this in his letters in the New Testament. The peace of God is actually the work that God has done to make us at peace with him. Friends, this is the very core of the gospel. This is the very core of Christianity, isn't it? That we, in our sin, rebel against God and tell God, no, thank you, I'm going to try and do this on my own. We reject him. We do not worship him as he deserves. We put ourselves in the center of our lives. And this sin creates a a rift in our relationship with God. We are enemies of God, according to the Bible, because of our rebellion against him. And we have no peace. But God so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, And Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience and fellowship with the Father. And then, at the end of his life, offered himself up. Offered himself up to say, I will be the peace offering so that you now can make peace again. The punishment that we deserve because of our rejection of God goes upon Jesus. And we are then called by faith to return to a relationship with God, the creator of the universe, the Lord of heaven and earth, now becomes our heavenly father again. And we are brought into his family. And so when Paul says the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, what he's saying is the peace that has been bought by the blood of Christ, the peace that you now have with God the Father, This is the thing that now enables you in the face of all the other anxieties of life to 
to go to him, to pray to him and trust that he will take care of these things. And as we do this, remarkably, we find that we have joy and we can rejoice in the Lord always, even in the worst circumstances. We can rejoice not in those circumstances, but in the Lord. And in fact, we can, verse 5 is an interesting one. Let your reasonableness, nobody knows how to translate this word. Um, different translates, translations have forbearance, gentleness, moderation. Uh, one of the best translations I think it is, is it is let your dignity under pressure be known because the Lord is near to you. Rather than being a stressed out, curt, uh, sometimes harsh person in the middle of the anxieties that control you, which is what I can be so often, when I get consumed with anxiety, I lose that. Paul says, no, when you trust these things to God, there's actually this ability to be calm and to be gentle and to have dignity with one another in the midst of stressful situations. So conflict erodes our ability to stand firm. Anxiety certainly erodes our ability to stand firm. What's the third thing? Verses 8 and 9. Look with me briefly. It's not actually in there. We have to kind of mirror read what might be the thing he's concerned about. The enemy seems to be an overwhelming concern with things that are not of concern to God. So it is somewhere between distraction and impurity that we so easily capture our hearts. And Paul wants us to fight against that. And friends, let me just ask you, is your life distracted? Do you find your heart being drawn towards things that if it came up in casual conversation, say here at church, you might be embarrassed to talk about? Um, are there things I just think we are so bombarded whether it be through the visual media of advertisement whether it be through the internet that we are all slavishly connected to we are bombarded all the time with things that at best distract us and at least capture our hearts with things that are not of God The modern world we live in promises you can have it all now if you will just sell yourself to Apple or Microsoft, whatever, or internet pornography or whatever it is. You can have the pleasure, you can have everything you want now is part of the promise of this world I think part of what's in picture here is what Paul described in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3. When he talks about their God is their belly. They glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. How easily that can be true of us. And how easily when we do that we lose our ability to stand firm in the truths of the gospel and in the hope of the gospel. So Paul gives us verses 8 and 9 as a gospel command. Instead, devote yourself 
devote yourself to these things. You look at, you see it, the, 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 the verbs are at the end of chapter 8. Think about these things. And then in verse 9, practice these things. What are these things? Things that are good. Things that are intrinsically virtuous. Things that are corresponding to the nature and goodness of God in his common grace and in his special grace. How intentional are you with your entertainment? Do you think about whether your entertainment is helping you think thoughts about God and his goodness and his glory or not? What is it that dominates your conversation at the dining hall? I know people don't gather around the water cooler anymore, but in your workplace, in the casual conversations... What is it that that fills these things? What, What do you think about when you set your budget, your money? Paul is saying there are better things to invest your life in probably than what you are doing right now. And this is not an exhortation toward some sort of stoic, there's no pleasure in this world, monastic, I'm going to try to escape from it. It's not that at all. What Paul is saying is that whenever we, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, in whatever we do, let us do it to the glory of God. Let us do it in a way that leads us to appreciate and value the character and the goodness of God more and more. That's the gospel command here, is to invest our lives, to be intentional, to pursue those things. And the gospel promise is at the end of verse 9. When we do these things, the God of peace will be with us. The God who has made peace. The God who is able to cause all peace to happen. Because he holds everything in his hand. The God who is able to bring by reconciling people in conflict. The God of peace will bring peace will be with you in the midst of all of these external forces and pressures, all of these internal weaknesses that you see in your own heart. The God of peace will be with you. And in being with you, he will help you to stand firm. He will help you to stand firm because, as we've learned back in chapter 3, verse 12... Christ Jesus has already taken hold of us. For all who are in Christ Jesus, this hope is real. That he has taken hold of us. And so in the face of all these things, we can stand firm. Because he has already made the ground for us to stand on in Christ. If you're here, and you're exploring Christianity. I want you to see that whatever you might think Christianity is about, at the core of it, it's about God calling us back into this relationship with him so that we might know 
all of the richness of the blessings of what we've seen here. We have our names written in the book of life. The peace of God is now ours. And the God of peace is now with us. Because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you have uh, given it to us. God, we pray uh, that you would help us to understand it. Uh, Lord, not only to understand it, Lord, but take it to heart. Lord, may we uh, think about these things and may we put them into practice. God, that we might know you, the God of peace, more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As praise team comes up, we're going to respond in worship and then uh, I'll be back up in just a minute for a few minutes of Q&A so you can be thinking about questions. Let's stand together. Andrew. What is a good litmus test for what is commendable and what is not? So, sir, what, what fits into that category of, of, uh, in, in verse 8? That... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, those are, I mean, that's a really good question. It's actually fascinating. All the words in there are not common New Testament words. They're actually words from general um, moral philosophy in the Greek world. And so they're sort of, an, another word for them is, they're things that are virtuous in the old, you know, it's not a word we talk about very much, but things that have intrinsic virtue or goodness to them. I think... When I think about your particular question about how, how do I do this litmus, one of the questions that I would, you know, some of the questions that I ask to, to filter, one is, would I be ashamed if, I, if a particular person knew I was thinking about these things or focusing? Like, I, that's not a perfect test, but it's one of the ones that I use. Um, one of the other things is, does it actually help me um, think about the Lord. Now, not everything is going to do that consciously, but one, again, a litmus test. If I'm telling my best friend the next day, what did you do yesterday? Oh, I did this. Can I connect that somehow to the Lord's goodness in my life? Or does it just seem like, yeah, I watched, I watched eight episodes of CSI and it's really hard for me to tell you how that's been like beneficial from for the Lord for my walk with the Lord. Um, so, yeah, Dan. Yep. Yep. Right, so the question is, is there a, a burden that's different from anxiety about things that are out of our control, things that are concern in the world? Um, I, I think there is. Part of the reason I would say that is when Paul talks about his sufferings in Corinthians, he talks about the burden that he has for the church or his concern for the church. And, and this is the same Paul who's saying, don't be anxious about things. So I'm assuming that he's not 
at one, in one place extolling his anxiety. <laughs> uh, I think he's saying, so I think there is a place and there is a distinction. Uh, I think um, the difference would be that things that are a burden to you about the fallen state of the world, about the, the hard things that are going on in your life, is that they're, they're actually, to have a godly burden is actually going to draw you into fellowship with God who cares more about those things than you do. And there's gonna, it's going to result in a kind of trust. Um, in the midst of that burden being burdensome, um, that I think we'll, we'll see that only God can really renew the world and make it right again, you know. And he's accomplished that at the cross, but he, he hasn't, in the resurrection, but he hasn't yet fully, you know, manifested. And he will one day. And so to know that only God has the ability to, to do these things and to recognize that if anyone is grieved over sin and pain and suffering in the world, God is more than any of us. And so, so I think a healthy burden draws us into fellowship with God like that. Whereas anxiety tends to make us, you know, step back from God. Or to, you know, at worst it makes us think, God, why, can't you, why aren't you fixing this for me? And we actually get into a more adversarial. Uh, and, or we just think, this is my ball. I've got to run with it. God has nothing to do with this. And, and, then we, and so rather than drawing near to God in it, we actually find ourselves distance from God. So, what else? Jonathan. Um, why he mentions Clement and the other workers or the names are written in the book of life I think I think that what he's trying to do is he's trying to help as he's writing very particularly to these two prominent women who are in conflict in Philippi he's trying to say okay you two and then oh by the way you yoke true companion help them um, because they have labored together on the same team with Clement, who is, I'm assuming, either someone in the church or someone who's well-known to, to all, um, and then other fellow workers. But what he's saying is, look, we're all on the same team. And we're all on the same team missionally because God has given us this mission to make known the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone. So this conflict is, is, is out of step with that unified mission, but it's also out of step with this unified identity. And I think that's why he talks about it. He's saying, this conflict, you should and you ought to doggedly pursue it rather than just try to overlook it or pretend it's not there or feel like awkward, distant silence is okay. You actually want to pursue it to work through it to reconciliation because your names are written together in the book of life. You guys are going to be in the family of God forever. Um, don't live with this rift now. I think that's why he puts it in there. So, Anyone else? It was crystal clear. Well, if you have any other questions, please feel free to come up and talk with me. Um, let me just... 
point you to your bulletin for a few quick announcements as we um, 